a dark and stormy night. When the captain asked me to change clothes and meet him in the holodeck, I thought he was joking. Or at least I hoped he was joking. Anyway, I decided to take him up on the offer because, well, what else was I going to do with my intimate knowledge of fictional detective stories set hundreds of years in the past? Everything went great until I got lippy with Leech and he shot me in the gut. I don't remember much after that, but I'm happy I was there to provide some drama for the main cast to overcome. Here's to many more adventures with this crew, which I'm very sure I will be having going forward. Personal log, non-commissioned officer, Will. Welcome to Re-Engage, everyone, where we, your 20th century historians on this journey, return to a sci-fi series we all have a very strong connection to, Star Trek The Next Generation. It debuted in 1987 when we were all young, and now in 2020, we re-engage with the series one episode at a time and reconsider Star Trek from a new perspective. Before we start talking more about what happens in The Big Goodbye, let's say hi to everybody. Hi, how are you? I am Greg Tito, and I am joined by Kate. Hi, Kate, how are you? Hi, Greg, I'm great. How are you? I'm very excited to talk about The Big Goodbye. I am so all for this genre. Uh, I, I'm, I love these genre episodes. I'm excited to delve in. Yeah, we get to go back in time. Jimmy G, how are you doing? Hey, boss. You want us to podcast about it? <laughs> <laughs> and step on it. <laughs> yes, and step on it. That was the best closing line ever. So good. Especially in light of Saru's uh, playing around with how he should tell his crew to step on it in disco. So yes. I love that, actually. A little, a little change from the norm. Uh, but we have our own norm. We have Eric Gratton here. How are you, Eric? <laughs> I'm doing well. Was that a cheers reference? Yes. And how should I feel about it? <laughs> um, I, I do have kind of a point of contention from your intro. I want to point out that in 1987, Jimmy was not young. Jimmy has never been young. In <laughs> I would, like Benjamin Button, but stuck in middle age yeah. forever. Started as Jonathan Winters and got right down to you and just stopped. Amazing. I laugh because it's true and it hurts. It hurts in the soul. <laughs> Good. There are so many uh, crusty old character actors in this uh, episode, which we'll get to talking about. Uh, the Big Goodbye, a uh, episode uh, that kind of takes two titles from Raymond Chandler's, you know, film noir detective kind of thing puts them together uh and we end up having this great episode it was in january it's the first um star trek next generation episode in the new year uh january 11th 1988 is when it premiered it had 11.5 rating uh from the nielsen family so glad that they were able to give it that rating that was nice of them <laughs> the great family not a lot going on in january 1988 <laughs> uh i'm not i'm gonna say especially uh early on but i did find one interesting fact january 9th u.s male figure skating championship was won by none other than brian boitano <gasps> uh, yeah brian boitano <laughs> boitano oh, yes. that just even everybody take a moment to imagine how brian orser brian orser must have <laughs> he was very sad at the time very sad man. <laughs> Another weird fact. Uh, January 3rd, Margaret Thatcher became the longest serving British prime minister in this entire century. Uh, she was there from 1979 to 1990, but this was the date in which she surpassed uh, 
Actually, I don't know who she surpassed. Churchill, but we'll, maybe? we'll go with Churchill. We'll just say it's well, Churchill. It's a, it's a really interesting fact. Um, fuck you, um, Churchill. Iron Lady? Uh, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> fuck you, uh, Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher. Uh, that's is, Madam. Is the little known fact. Yes. Actually, both of them. One was a genocidal shit, and the other was uh, just an asshole to the miners and many other people for many, many, many years. I'm pretty sure the only thing that she has done that has been any good is give us uh, a performance by Gillian Anderson. Yeah. With that hair. With that hair, right? I think I just saw a picture of her today, like uh, Gillian Anderson as in costume, like sitting like all funny on the throne. Uh, And I was like, you know, if nothing else, Margaret Thatcher, he gave us that. That gem. Well, you know, uh, I played Margaret Thatcher on stage uh, here in Seattle about uh, four years ago. Wow. I did not know Billy Elliot. Um, At the top of act two, I did a whole number. Oh, that's right. I saw that. <clears throat> it was a really good time. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie to you. I was. I thought you were gonna I say was it was delightful. your one woman show. Yeah. Well, I mean, I d- I discontinued it after that. <laughs> I had nothing left to prove. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the last little bit of what's happening is that "So Emotional" by Whitney Houston <gasps> is number one on the Billboard charts this week. I knew. Th- I get so emotional, baby. Mm-hmm. Every time I think of you. Ooh, ooh. Oh, so good. Oh, that's amazing. That's one of those that just comes right back to you, and you remember every moment in it and every kind of, you know, dramatic key change within. Like, that's so awesome to hear about that song. I, I, I admit I haven't listened to it in a decade, I'm sure. Yeah. And all this stuff is proving how big Whitney Houston was in the 80s. She was like the bankable star uh, during this time period. And uh, it's it's amazing. I, I don't, I, you're right. I knew, Kate, you were going to be, I, I said thank you for, for singing it because I don't think I would have remembered what it sounded like. <laughs> Just try to stop me. I know. I will stump you with all the Whitney Houston uh, tracks that we could throw up here. Well, and at this point, she hadn't even gotten into acting yet. And, and she did pretty well there for a few years before. You know, going into the reality show business. Oh yeah, when was Bodyguard? Was that we're we're, we're closing was, in on that? I want to say early nineties, ninety one, somewhere around yeah. there. It's getting there. Um, but you know, also she did the Preacher's uh, Wife, Preacher's Wife, yes. and Waiting to Exhale, and you know, she she had a bunch of big blockbusters. She's got her whole life in front of her right now. It's crazy to think about. Yeah. All I remember All is from, from this time. Yeah, it's, it, it turns, spoiler alert, everything turns out fine. Yeah. A lot of years before the bathtub. <laughs> no, I remember that there was a radio, like our, our lo- local morning, you know, morning zoo. And it was probably 1987 or, or thereabouts where they, uh, they played a song and it was like, don't my songs all sound the same? <laughs> Who cares? Don't I sound like I am yelling? Sing so high I make the dogs go nuts. Don't my songs all sound the same? Yes. And I remember that to this very, very day. Wow. Wow. It's just you inspired on multiple levels. That's amazing. <laughs> we should stop the podcast now. We're not going to talk about that. That was the apex of what we can deliver. I will say that in high school, like I have vivid memories of the morning, you know, disc jockeys that we liked and the the skits that they would do. Yeah. My friends and I still reference them. Like that's a, that's a thing I don't have anymore like i don't rep i I mean i guess i reference podcast stuff with my friends that i know listen to the same thing but it's it's 
<laughs> the morning shock jock, you know, when it when it was interesting is something different. Yeah, because you just everybody was listening to it. It was everyone. It was like and it was regional. We just don't have that anymore. It was a different time. Um, but speaking of <laughs> let's do a podcast about peaking it. and 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 entering that. This is this episode. Uh, the big goodbye is an award-winning episode uh, uh, written <laughs> yeah. by Tracy Torme uh, on an idea by Gene Roddenberry uh, and directed by Joseph Scanlon. And Eric, what did you have to tell us about Mr. Mr. Scanlon? I just, when I looked him up, it's so impressive, this career. It's a, it's a director I didn't, I had never heard of. I actually looked him up to see if it was possible that he was in relation to Claire Scanlon because so many uh, things in Hollywood come in families. So I was curious. And uh, what I found instead was a journeyman, you know, uh, director and filmmaker uh, who had a career that I think anyone of us would be extraordinarily proud of. You know, he directed episodes of quantum leap and the young writers <gasps> and star Trek, the next generation and Spencer for hire and Falcon crest and Knott's landing and land of the lost, of the lost. and another world and Somerset and La Femme Nikita. And then I got down a little bit further and you get like poltergeist, the legacy and you get multiple episodes of dangerous minds and wow. Lois and Clark and I'm just so impressed with that career and I'm glad I know about it now that we're investigating each one of these episodes. It's just not something I was paying attention to when I was 12, you know? Uh, I just got a full body shock when you said <laughs> Young Writers because right? I lived for that show. Like that is up there for me with, with Next Generation in terms of uh, Young Kate making budding discoveries of uh, the feelings about, uh, you know. Horses. 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 Uh, I loved that show so friggin' much. I'm, yes, everything else you said, I didn't hear it. Because I <laughs> well, it's okay. Check him out. He, Joe, old Joe had a great career. Yes, and I think he even directed a Misfits of Science episode which I would call me back to that, you know, half of a season of television that was very formative for me, not in the, in the way that the young writers was, exactly. Uh, but exactly that way, actually. Now, There's no budding. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that's one of those call signs where I, did you, were you in the eighties? Do you remember this show? And I will describe it. And people are either like, no, I have no idea what I'm talking about where they had this like, yes, it was, it was like our firefly because it ended up, it ended way too early in my opinion. And uh, I, you know, I got a, that and, and Voyagers. Remember that show Voyagers where they go back in time using a pocket watch. Yeah, short-lived I, I genre think you're 80s. A couple, just like a couple years younger than me, Greg. Because for me, the, those shows are like Frank's Place and Hooperman <laughs> and the Diaries of Slap Maxwell and the Days and Nights of Molly Dodd. Wow! <laughs> I, I feel like mm. I feel like the the ones those are the ones that uh, the the famous Teddy Z. Those were the ones that I wanted to go five or six more wow. years when I was. You know, just discovering television. And this is like the micro generation split because I literally have yeah. no idea what those shows are. I was just about to say, most people think you just made all of those up off the top of your head. <laughs> and he very well could have. Hey, let it be known that I am available to staff writers. <laughs> <laughs> this knowledge is 
available out there. Um, <laughs> there are so many fantastic character actors uh, in this episode. I really love Lawrence Tierney. As soon as I saw him, I was like, oh my God, it's the the, the crime boss from Reservoir Dogs. Uh, he has such a great turn in that uh, movie and he does a great job kind of as a as a more learned villain uh a mobster villain or at least you know he thinks he's more learned uh saying big words uh but i but i enjoyed his his performance here what did you guys think of lawrence well, journey and he has a little bit of a star trek connection in the film noir world as well because he was a leading man back in the actual film noir days uh, and one of his uh, starring roles was in Born to Kill, mm. which was a, a super violent movie that got banned after it was released. But it was directed by Robert Wise, who, of course, directed Star Trek, the motion picture. So those two work together in an actual film noir that you should all check out and see Born to Kill. God, it was good. Any excuse to talk about Robert Wise. Sorry. Good stuff. No excuse needed. Jimmy, do you have any uh, memories of, of Lawrence Tierney? No. <laughs> <laughs> what about Dick Miller, the uh, the newspaper guy? Uh, I feel like I've seen this guy everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Wasn't he in Gremlins, among yes, other things? Yes, he was. Yes, the Burbs. He's been in every Joe Dante movie. I mean, he, oh. he no longer will be. He's no longer around. But he, he and Joe Dante started out for Roger Corman. <clears throat> back before he found success so he's in all those like the, the you know the uh what's the one with the werewolves the joe dante um the howling he's oh in yes that. he's in piranha he's in um the burbs you know i think i think he's literally in every feature that joe dante made which is super cool but yeah his own there's a there's a documentary about dick miller called i think that guy dick miller <laughs> um, and it's just perfect he is he is in everything it is crazy i i tweeted about him once and he replied to me something along the lines of you got that right pal and i'm like <laughs> okay <laughs> like i hope dick miller just spends his entire days uh, just name searching himself on twitter uh, i mean i or don't think he's around it, anymore but that would be amazing. it could be a very clever bot <laughs> just anybody who says dick miller on twitter and just says you got that right pal you <laughs> got that right, pal. Oh, I would love it. I would love it too. Uh, there's uh, and there's a great line associated with him in this episode. I mean, the whole South American thing yes. is <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and, and the it's way akin to the how they try to talk about Spock's pointed ears in uh, the original series. I mean, it's just as ridiculous. <laughs> just uh, he's from South America. <laughs> Okay. Also, yeah. we, we, right. we right. could just see Picard acting in that moment, quote unquote acting, you know, hey, Mac, I would like to buy a paper. Right. <laughs> it's just so forced and so sweet. I love it. That scene is all. And then Data comes along and gets even more forced and more sweet. And, and uh, Picard gets a chance to be a little bit charmed, but a little bit frustrated with that. It's perfect. <laughs> yes. Uh, but my favorite little bit from that line is the... Um, Talk about DiMaggio, DiMaggio's streak. He's going to get, he's in 37. So this, uh, it's a funny way to date it, but that's this where this takes place is June 25th, 1941, which incidentally is my birthday on June 25th. So oh. also in 1941, oh. I'm that old. No, I'm not. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, but they also mention that, it, or data is about to go on and be like, that streak is going to be along until it's broken by, you know, so-and-so. Uh, but they don't actually mention the name of the uh, member of the London Kings, uh, this major, new Major League Baseball team. Apparently they do mention it in Deep Space Nine. They actually cite the the, the player's name uh, in that episode, which I thought was a nice callback to, to what's happening here. It's also a big sci-fi trope. Well, I don't know a big one. At least twice. This episode <laughs> and in um in Fifth Element, where they where baseball is used as an analogy for how uh, America has lost its grip on <laughs> being the dominant uh, factor in baseball and that you know they make the joke in Fifth Element how uh, the, the Americans haven't won the World Series in a century. <laughs> then now you have uh, the London Kings of all places in London. They will never play baseball in London. They've got their own. Well, they tried to make a somewhat similar joke in Back to the Future Part 2 with the Miami uh, baseball team that the Cubs beat, right? And uh, then a couple years later, they put a team in Miami. And they they won the World Series. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All calling back to... I wanted to see it. It's also a time travel-y type thing, too. So I'm wondering if uh, there's some connection there. There must be. There's one other actress I wanted to call out, which uh, Rhonda Aldrich, uh, who plays the secretary to Dixon Hill, uh, named Madeline. Um, she appears actually as this character in three f- subsequent uh, Next Generation episodes. So she's one of the few oh. kind of through right. lines of this Dixon Hill storyline uh, in the episode. Not to later, come. though, that we get her name. That's right. Yeah, she's just known as the, the secretary, I think, in this one. Uh, but she also had a long career and uh, was the voice of Rainbow Bright uh, in the Rainbow <gasps> Bright movie. Get and, out of here. Hell right. Yes. Isn't that crazy? That a powerful little oh, superhero. I just all of a sudden had this like whiff of, of strawberry plastic. Uh, there's nothing <laughs> like the smell of a strawberry shortcake. <laughs> strawberry doll. plastic. Yeah. Wow. And then I glanced at her bio page, and maybe I don't know where Leon, Kansas is. Do you know where that is, Eric? I do not. It's know a big where state. Leon, yeah, Kansas but she is. apparently grew up there. And then in in this like little write up, it says she got her equity card at the old St. Nicholas Theater in Chicago, and then moved to New York City, and mm. you, know, to, you know, got a husband, and then moved out to the to the West, and started doing uh, things. But the way that it's described just felt all very much like okay, yeah, I know, I know, I know, Yoranda. So uh, St. Nicholas Theater uh, is known today as Steppenwolf, uh-huh. and uh, it's the theater that my uh, acting teacher, Jim Wise, helped to found uh, with many of the people who went on to Steppenwolf Theater. Um, so a little connection there. That's a strange between, connection. You not directly that. to me, but uh, I mean, my my the guy that taught me everything I know, that was where he cut his teeth. St. Nicholas. So he certainly was uh, somebody was in her circle. Very cool. Very cool. I love that. I've asked the uh, internet machine and it tells me that Leon is a little town just to the east of Wichita. So I've, I'm sure driven through it, but I have not noticed it, <laughs> which uh, can be said of most of the towns in my home states. <laughs> and, and even, you know, the, the states surrounding, there, there's a lot of open spaces. Yeah, I mean, within 600 miles of where I grew up, I've, I've driven through most of it and noticed little of it. <laughs> I apologize to all of you. I don't mean to belittle it. It is large, not little, and it is beautiful. Um, but I did not notice Leon, Kansas. <laughs> 
<laughs> just like in South America. Uh, Har- <laughs> Harvey Jason also is a very interesting uh, character actor who plays Leech. Uh, I just love his. We were talking about it a little bit before we started recording the his performance as the the sniveling, whiny, uh, you know, mobster henchman uh, is is really entertaining. I, I despise guns, and yet because of him, I really want to play a character who holds a gun the way Felix does, where it's just kind of bent against himself, and he's as scared of the gun as they are, and it, the only reason people move away is that it's a gun, and of course <laughs> I can't come anywhere near it, but like this guy is going to hold me hostage. It's just a wonderful performance, like you say. What were you going to say, Kate? That was it. I, well, no, I just no. It was uh, that he fits that trope or that that idea of uh, like he's central casting for that, which is perfect and perfection for what we're asking for. Um, just brings back that you know has that that ring of watching those old movies, and I love it. Yeah, yeah, he does. A, he does a really good turn here. I love how he's just so um, just evil like he there's nothing good about him he's just like i just want to kill them please let me kill them it's so fun and you're like no one's really like okay well do it up at you know you 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 got this it's super fun um what did you think uh jimmy about the overall uh kind of plot wrapper of this that the fact that they need to deliver a address to a uh, new alien race, which we don't get to see, uh, apparently. Yeah, boo to that, by the way. Don't promise me a brand yeah. new race that I have never seen and that they are insectoids and right. they speak this crazy fucking language and I don't get to see those motherfuckers. Yeah, they ran out of money. I mean, literally, yeah. they ran out of money and they had to cut it out so you never got to see them. There's no other well, reason. They, uh, they tease one of the great tropes, which is that whole two cultures meeting for di- diplomatic relations for the first time and not knowing how to approach each other like they they do that with you know D- darmok is is the big mm. one right and uh but it, they promised us an episode like that and then didn't give it to us <laughs> yeah right i know and the fact that they had to cut out the just because of money you're like oh no they had a, uh, the idea was they were going to be this insect hive mind looking thing right. with flapping <clears throat> wings and i could just see the production designer being like uh, nope sorry we got cars in this one <laughs> nobody will buy a hive mind it's impossible <laughs> until season two <laughs> at least well i think the federation really has to reconsider uh the people they're picking for their first contact like a race that's so stringent about you don't say it right it's it and i don't know what happened to the first group of people but they're like right? we don't even want to talk about it that's how bad it was like, data wants to show us i, I don't know uh but <laughs> they didn't give me a reason for why you need to like do they have uh uh whatever their their energy sources the crystals like dial dilithium right, is this dilithium. a planet full of dilithium like what's there's got to be something shady of like look they're crazy people, but we need them. We got to get them in the Federation. Otherwise, it's like, you know what? We don't need to talk sync. <laughs> it's the first time. Well, we'll get we'll get to kind of the end of the morning. But that whole beginning bit with uh, Troy trying to teach Picard how to learn that language. First of all, why are the symbols that he's describing not like transcribed to, uh, you know, 
the 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 alphabet alphabet that we use i don't know why exactly but he does describe it in such a way that feels very frustrating it reminded me of trying to learn a foreign language (laughs) well it reminded me of uh of ipa which is Mm. like when you're trying to learn a different accent Mm. and there's this uh sort of phonetic language uh of you know schwa's and uh upside down (laughs) e's and like weird dashes and dots that are all supposed to long s's yeah that are all supposed to mean something to you and i have all of my papers from college that i still pull out whenever i have to do a role and have to remember and teach myself that goddamn it's very helpful uh (laughs) alphabet once again when uh eric and i were doing the other podcast he got me so upset one time and I said, what? And I was like, damn you, Eric. You made me use the aspirated H. What? <laughs> <laughs> he much prefers bilabial fricatives. And, uh, it drives him crazy when I don't let him go there. So I, so do, do, do you know how to read phonetically very easily, yeah. all three of you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm impressed. We're classically trained. Master actors, sir. That is amazing. Yeah, I I didn't realize that. So yeah, that's a, exactly what they're referencing with the three wavy lines, and then if that get, the B turns into a C, if it's done in a different way, it must. Uh, oh man, that's tough. Uh, yeah. So the, that is the overall wrapper of the plot and everything. Uh, but then they're like, yeah, you need some R and R. Go into the holodeck, and nothing bad will ever happen. I love that she says to him, uh, you need a diversion, and he knows exactly what he wants, like, immediately. She she just mentions, you you deserve a break, and he says, Dixon Hill. Like, he has been prepping for this moment. He knows that the holodeck has... He's a kid with a toy, and he's so excited about it. And especially, oh my god, after his first experience, and then he wanders around with that damn lipstick on his mouth. Yes. And then and then goes into a, a meeting <laughs> where he's like a small child talking about his things until he finally remembers he has to call this meeting to order because they're there for, what's that word? Oh, yeah, official things. It's so, we've been watching a lot of the, uh, the Office, the American version of The Office, and that moment that Picard is so excited to talk about, that's a, a Michael Scott moment. Like, he's like, oh, yeah. I, and there were automobiles you can drive and, and he was so excited and it, it, everyone's like oh wait it, what we're really here for is this harada thing i guess let's talk about it well isn't that a, a i don't know if i'm reading too much in it but it seems like it's uh for them for us as the audience especially back in 1988 and for even these characters the holodeck this holodeck at least is new like mm-hmm. we see it in the very first episode where when Data meets um, Riker, they sort of talk about the holodeck and it, it's not like anything else. And then when he comes back, he's really like emphasizing it's so much more real than I thought. I mean, it's like, a, you know, the first time you put on Oculus or something. Um, yeah. And I had, you know, by rewatching it, I forgot. I was like, oh, yeah, it's a holodeck. Like, you know. Abed and Troy have a holodeck. I mean, that's how common it is now. And uh, it, it, it it wasn't. And his, like, Picard's telling the audience, like, this is not like anything else you've seen in Star Trek. These are, this is a whole immersive world. We don't have to go to a planet that is recreating 1930s. We can create anything we want. And this is the first episode of the many things we'll do in this room. Right. And you're right. This is the first real, like, the entire episode is about the holodeck. Uh, scene 
uh, an episode, right? Um, right? Of course, it's the first of many where the holodeck malfunctions. Uh, yeah. it, that seems to be a trope they pull in for a long time, maybe because of the success of this episode. Uh, since we talk uh, without regard to spoilers, which is one of my favorite things about what we do, when he turned and asked for the exit and there was no reaction, all I heard in my head was computer arch and i can't wait for moriarty yes. like oh. I, I feel like they were already like foreshadowing right. one of the great holodeck episodes a few seasons later absolutely well, and eric is too when when he yelled at the wall i was like i understand anytime <laughs> google doesn't listen to me i'm absolutely yelling at google as if the inanimate object will respond better with a louder voice. <laughs> it never works. It doesn't work. And the programmers are trying to fight that by programming more and more reactions into the AI as well and giving it more license to improvise with us when we fuck yeah. with it. <laughs> like I'm impressed. And they have the, you know, those inside the holodeck, uh, which is, which is data, uh, Dr. Crusher, Waylon, who we don't talked forget Waylon. Waylon, Waylon uh, and Captain Picard, they do the same things that we do when uh, the Alexa or the Google doesn't work, where it's just like, I don't know. I guess you're just going to have to deal with it. We got to figure it out. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. We can't open doors. We can't turn on lights. Nothing can happen right now. <laughs> Uh, I have to say there's a moment in that first ready room or, or the conference room meeting where I can't remember who someone references teenage mating rituals. Mm-hmm. And I, if that is not the name of a band now, it needs to be like, I am mad at myself for not having a band uh, in high school called teenage mating rituals. <laughs> Even for one rehearsal, just to say just, you yeah. had the band. Yeah. <laughs> What? I don't even remember why they're talking about teenage mating rituals. I know it makes I know it makes Wesley excited, so I got excited. Yeah. It should I be mean, a it's ska not too late band, for that right? to be the name of one of your improv side projects. It's but thank you. And Greg, <laughs> you are a thousand percent correct that it is ska. It's gotta be. <laughs> <laughs> I th- that's that's you know even that reference though that now and when hopefully I'll be able to play this uh, and watch this episode with my kids soon but they won't understand that it's it's a reference to like happy days and you know American graffiti and that whole riding riding around do, do kids do that now or is they just play among us with each other uh, as a <laughs> as a teenage dating ritual I don't know they sure drive around uh, West Seattle Beach. And have some teenage mating rituals? I don't even know about those things. It's I don't know about what they're doing. I just know they're driving around down there. Certainly when I was growing up, two years after this was you know, uh, filmed, the, the main street in Olathe, Kansas, Santa Fe, or uh, K-150, you know, the kids drove up and down all night long from the Taco Bell on one side to like the Perkins on the other side. And you just <laughs> turn around in the parking lot and do it again. All talking on the CBs. Like that's the kind of small CBs. town. Cruising wow. wow. Yeah. I can always go back to the queue. That's it. Oh, her, her, di- her dialect in that. Oh, she was so perfect. Like she was great in every sense in that movie. But in particular, her dialect is so fucking spot on. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, bow down to Parker Posey. I love oh Parker Posey. 
She's so good. Uh, I wish she was in Star Trek, but she's not, unfortunately. Um, but I do, we mentioned that earlier, the uh, South America uh, origin of Data as a way to explain his strange appearance. Uh, it calls back a little bit to um, how in the opening scene when Picard has his first uh, bit, they're like, uh, what did you do, lose a bet? And then they just kind of use that to explain away his uniform uh, and it works really they well. They say he looks like he's dressed like a bellhop, which I love. Right. <laughs> it kind of works. Yeah. Um, but I think they reference... Yeah, it's very like Marty McFly being in the Navy. because <laughs> he's got the puffer jacket. Guard. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the um, uh, South American stuff is, is interesting, too, because we get to see so many comedic bits from Data, right? Like, you know, uh, the one that I really love is when after he kind of beats up uh, somebody, he ended up doing this, like, weird, like motion do you guys notice that where he puts his hand forward and kind of shrugs his shoulder like he's a yeah, yeah he's like, a little prize fighter yeah, sort he's, of. he's fixing his jacket it's it's very uh the gangsters from kiss yeah. me kate right yeah, yeah and and yeah i mean it's it's one of those wonderful stereotypical 1950s yeah. richard widmark i'm a crazy gangster who just beat you up kind of motions like you'd see in johnny dangerously yeah. it, it, it is good eric it's summer stock it's very summer stock yeah Totally similar. The Lotzi that they do with the lamp when they're like, "Oh, I need, mo- oh, I need so more light," <laughs> and it's this whole, you know, minute long bit of right. uh, unplugging the right. lamp, and then, oh, I fixed it. I okay, can totally see Spiner too. Spiner's like, "We're gonna do the lamp bit, right?" Yeah. I mean, we got a lamp. We got to do like a. It's gonna be. I don't know that it's plugged in bit. I mean, it's here. We got to do it. <laughs> I mean, if there's a banana peel on the floor, I'm not going to fall on it. I'm going to fall on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love this is a lotsy heavy episode and that Gates McFadden gets a little bit of lotsy work with the lady of the evening. Yes. Right. Where she gets mm-hmm. to kind of set mm-hmm. herself next to this stylish woman and reveal a little bit of her leg knee and then yeah. realize, oh, and then she has that that moment, too, with the with the compact learning right. to put on, you know, makeup and how to zhuzh her hair and all that. I love it when we get to see Beverly be silly. Well, yes. and Greg and I were Playful. talking about uh, right at the beginning how this is heavy on the Picard and Crusher should be uh, hooking it up. I mean, it is. There's okay. no okay. subtlety is okay. out there. We want to get together. <laughs> can you okay. talk? Okay. First of all, I just have to say, as a as a little ending to one of her Lotsies, uh, Beverly swallows gum, and it is beautiful. <laughs> she, like, yeah. takes gum and then swallows it. It's gorgeous. But I wrote, um, in small letters, yes to this fucking meat cute, and then in all capitals, I am here for this sexual tension, god damn it! Because it is so good, that first meeting when he comes out... And, she, and he finds her there and they have this gorgeous moment. And then I swear to God, they sort of indicate that they're going to go smash in his office oh, yeah. because he's like, let's yeah. go to the office. And she's like, mm, OK, yeah, and he, then, she asked, she asked, can you show me your office? Sh- yes. I yes. don't see why not. And then fucking Waylon has to come and, and data and they holodeck, you know, block. Holodeck block. Holodeck block. <laughs> they are the third wheel. I'm wheels. so here for it. I'm so here for it. What would have Man. happened if they'd let him go? That's what I want to see. Yeah, that's what I wrote down. Like, 
what were they going to do in the office? Smash, smash, smash. <laughs> Star Trek, the next penetration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's both. <laughs> so I, I, going back a little bit to what Spiner was doing with, with his physicality in particular in this, and I was struck very much by his approach to data at its core being about him learning how to act human, how to be human, but and how similar that is to the journey of an actor trying to create the image of humanity and whether our, our project is best fulfilled by approaching that from copying the exterior behavior of humanity mm. to, to find an interior truth mm. or trying to find the interior truth and express it outwardly. Um, and, and those two approaches meet in how data tries to handle everything in this episode, whether it's sneezing all the way through, you know, uh, the, that little flourish at the end of the fight, like clowns like him or Lucia ball or Eddie Murphy or Bill Irwin, like they, they choose to use that physical to express the metaphysical part of the character. Yeah as opposed to to how some other comedians might might mm -hmm. choose kind of that inner portion out like like a you know i i don't know no. what's his name who's always on broadway now. there's a master class for you young actors <laughs> <laughs> it is like data is fantastic yeah. in it like this is a, a a very human search that he has made personal for himself and it, and it echoes probably how he would approach any character. And it's really exciting to watch. It is interesting because I don't think I've listened to it articulated in such a way, but like, that's why data is so obsessed with performance. Uh, you know, he, yeah. he, and we'll see it in future episodes that we, you know, tries to perfect comedy. He tries to perfect music and painting and all these other kind of other things because he sees them not as, you know, pretending, but just the way to embody humanity and then it drives inspiration yeah. and that's the human thing that he can't quite grasp unless he puts himself in those uh you know artificial you know situations well and all art in a way is faking it till you make it you know you you learn the outward approach to it and then at some point it just connects with your fucking soul and you you're stuck with it forever <laughs> And we, we saw that happen in this episode with Data. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the lamp, you could just see him becoming yeah. more human. <laughs> uh, but it's genius. Poor Waylon gets shot. Uh, we, and then in that moment, we know why he was there. Yes. His, his purpose has been fulfilled. <laughs> Some, he, someone had to get shot. It's probably going to be the one we don't know very well. Yeah, it didn't work yeah. as well in hide and queue when they just like killed two crew members and then uh, did that. So like, yeah, let's do something a little bit different. We'll create this this character. And it is after Waylon does such a great performance. He's like, that's the first time he really feels this whole simulation because the whole time yeah. he, he's the crit critical uh, thinker. He's like commenting on it and, you know, oh, isn't this great? But this is the one he, he kind of sews it. He's like, I'm going to give this performance and you leech you can't do anything about it and blah, blah blah and then boom he gets killed and uh or at least gets or shot mortally injured yes, yes he gets shot uh judging from his pallor he's not gonna last long um and then you know i felt <laughs> so bad for him but you know at least he he did something uh important. he didn't die though he didn't oh, die that we know of that <laughs> ever we know of. he wasn't alive. important enough to finish the storyline <laughs> 
<laughs> what were you gonna say, Eric? He's very much. I mean, the the people writing this season skipped right ahead to season five of Murder She Wrote, where it all <laughs> took place in Cabot Cove, and by then you know kind of the whole town. So in the first couple scenes, you absolutely know who's gonna die because it's the Cabot Covian that, that you've never you met, haven't met before. That one's dead. So it, they've skipped right to that with like episode eleven of the first season, and that's a bold move. <laughs> Side note, I have been watching all of Murder, She Wrote. I think I told you that during the pandemic, and we are we are almost done. It's brilliant. Fantastic. What a great show. Fantastic idea. That'll be my enjoyed. next podcast. I was thinking <laughs> the other day that did. we could still do, we could still have the Matlock, Murder, She Wrote uh, crossover that we've always wanted if if we have the, uh, the uh, tenacity to make it happen, all of us together. <laughs> <laughs> I recently watched the murder she wrote. Um, uh, oh no, I just forgot. Uh, Tom Selleck. Um, Magnum PI. Magnum, Magnum PI. PI. Magnum PI. Where uh, she went to Hawaii uh, and got and met him and murder. <laughs> and, then, and then she wrote about it. <laughs> Is that the one where Higgins killed somebody? <laughs> Loki. We can recreate it on the holodeck, everyone. We really can. Greg, did you notice there was a little Easter egg um, when Data was looking through and trying to do all of his um, research on Dixon Hill? Uh, They list the big goodbye on Data's screen and it has Tracy Torme's name as the as the writer. What a cool little note uh, to put. And I think it's the only time his that name, Tracy Torme, is is shown on screen, right? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Sure. (laughs) Let's go with it. Say it with confidence, Kate. Let's say, <laughs> as we always say in our house, when you don't know, you just say, let's say Mo. <laughs> That's a very video game way to put your name on screen, though, too. Like, the, the, it was the... Right? E- it's a total, total Easter egg. It really is. Yeah. Right yeah. in this era, yeah, I mean, too, when they when they had to do that because there were no credits for video games. And this is maybe even, you know, Tracy had heard about that and made sure that they uh, kept their names in there that way. Well, and there were there were examples of that back in the 30s and 40s as well. A lot of screwball comedies would have the credits at the beginning with, you know, walking through the uh, the circus or something like that. And the names would be in the in the midway sign. Oh, I love that. Uh, and uh, I yeah, I'm always a sucker for that. Just the kinetic typography that just makes the the. Uh, the letters just part of the action. It's right. Great. Exactly. Uh, Disco has been doing it a lot this season with uh, naming ships after real actors who have passed away. Hmm. Oh, that's fine. Uh, yeah. So the, the young man who played Chekhov in the, uh, the Kelvin timeline yeah. reboots, uh, his, he gets a name, uh, a, a ship named after him in the, the gentleman who played the young uh, Ferengi, and Deep Space Nine, who died mm. uh, in his 40s, he, and oh. his character became the first Ferengi in Starfleet, also got a ship named after him. And mm. you see that name uh, as they come into uh, into the Starfleet dock. So That's super fun. Uh, but I feel like we're ignoring the elephant in the room here. Tell me. Uh, there is a fatal failsafe that was never addressed when they were designing the holodeck in that there should be no way that a holodeck gun somehow (laughs) materializes real bullets that can 
shoot people. And that's this exactly is, what Wayland says. He's like, they're not supposed to be real. Right. right. These it are is, fake it's an idiotic, idiotic device that they, they went away from because they realized this is uh unjustifiably stupid well i thought that was because of the the scan that right how does received. a scan make <laughs> make a because, holographic gun because of science <laughs> because of freedom <laughs> the <laughs> algorithms I'm sorry. as a socialist progressive i don't understand those terms <laughs> i was confused surrounding that uh what Wesley was exactly doing as he was trying to fix things oh. and he was looking through these like I thought you were going to say what was Wesley doing at all of, being on the ship first but of all how dare you we're fighting again <laughs> second of all of course he's read the manual he stands up immediately and says I read the manual because of course he fucking read the manual you don't even have to say it Wesley we know you read the manual you're going to fix it go do it but the way they they're using like little physical glow in the dark binoculars sort of to, that are like microscopes but is he looking yeah, at code like him, what is he doing that's what I was trying you to you expect him to pull out a hammer right after that he's like I'll take care of this I got it. Well, and also, like in that whole bit, they're really bitchy with one another. Like the Riker, but uh, um, uh, uh, Jordy, Jordy calls uh, Riker, and he goes, "I told you he's in the holodeck." It's like I know. <laughs> and, then, and then when Riker comes down, he's like. Did you try the intercom? <laughs> <laughs> and I just wished Jordy were like, you know, we didn't. Did you try turning it off and back yeah, on again? Yes. Right. I'll plug it and plug it, it back go. in. Let's give it a go, Riker. Yeah, I feel like that well, was all the 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 tension just needed to be high on both sides of the holodeck and to make sure that they were doing something to fix something. Uh, this is like, I think the second time a scan has messed up something. Uh, so they're already pulling into the same, uh, you know, techno babble uh, right. plot devices. Uh, and it's it's very, very shallow bag thin gossamer thread mm -hmm. in this one uh, as to how it could possibly be uh, i saw someone point out though the this was originally supposed to premiere after the one one zero zero one zero zero one episode that's coming uh later uh and someone said like, if they had gone in the correct order you might have said that what the um uh, species does in that episode ends up messing with the holodeck programming and could make this more plausible right um, but it's, you know, you just kind of hand wave yeah. it away a little bit. Any, anytime you can explain it away by saying, well, the esoterica from a future episode that was supposed <laughs> to be the esoterica from a previous right. episode would have solved all of this. Uh, it's probably a bullshit explanation, but that's fine too. Cause this is science fiction right. <laughs> and it's fine. It's also likely a kid's show, especially for those of us who grew up as kids thinking it was for us. Right. Like it's fine. Yeah. I love, love, love the scholarship that goes into people finding ways that it is all possible scientifically. Oh, yeah. I love it. And I love the research that the writers do trying to make it so yeah. but i don't demand it <laughs> make it so I, I like that you wove that in too thank you make it so yeah still just sticking with the you know the world they gave us why uh you know why would why why make first contact with people who so violently probe you 
And then after you talk to them, say, hey, and can we talk about the probe? Because uh, that caused some problems for us. We might have a dead guy because of your probe. Have you met Waylon? Yeah. He's delightful. He's a delightful man. I love Waylon. Dial back the probe from 11, okay? It's too powerful. Well, and then hearing the, the monologue, like I can only think that it's only pronunciation and not like, tone or inflection that they care about at all because that's some aggressive shit it is aggressive shit and the whole time picard is doing it uh deanna is in the back mouthing the words along with him like like a fucking stage mom and it's so great it's true she's just wants him to do so well so well and then they applaud for him yes it's the best oh it's incredible just that he comes onto the, you know, deck at, after all of this has happened, hasn't had time to change, and just blah. He's a gamer. Yeah. Yeah. That's he just rises to it like every worst actor we've ever worked with. <laughs> just a nightmare during rehearsals. Yeah. Lights come up. They're just perfect. And they're brilliant. Fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> It's it is such a badass moment though when he takes off the coat and throws oh, yeah. it down and he's like all right I'm gonna do this thing it is very satisfying I think that's the I, I'm, only time I've seen applause happen on the bridge uh, in quite such a dramatic fashion it feels feels like you put on a show yeah it's it's that rare moment where you get the uh, the crew or the rest of the cast who are you know, standing around the rehearsal room to clap at the end of your scene. Good job, Jean-Luc. It's a show within a show within a show. Because there's <laughs> so many all? layers in this episode. Maybe. Uh, the well, One final thing I wanted to mention was the excitement uh, of Gates McFadden. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, Kate, but there's that one line that she does. Well, why aren't we all being interrogated? <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> that it just tickles me to this day that she's like, ooh, he's being you know and she just wants to be a part of it why are we all missing out well and this is after she's walked in looking stunning mm-hmm. in her high heels and then immediately falls down the stairs in them. <laughs> so fucking good again i just i love it when they let her be physical and yeah. let her be loose and and free and again you're not wrong that sexual tension moment is just that is the Please. episode for me mm-hmm. you know john luke went to his room after that applause, he's like, man, I almost got laid tonight. <laughs> if it wasn't for Waylon and Data. Waylon! Oh, not Wayland. being able to pick up on my signals here. <sighs> if there's a sock on the door in the holodeck, <laughs> you know what to do. Well, since we've been talking here, what keeps coming up to my mind is that not only do we have the virtual reality and the other things that are that are taking the holodeck kind of world of our youth but I mean, I think an episode like this directly saw the rise of something like Escape mm. Rooms, where you go into a fictional three-dimensional world mm. mm-hmm. and something goes wrong. Mm. Um, and you have to solve that mystery in order to get yeah. out. Like that's Escape Rooms are based pretty much directly on this, which is really cool. That's a good you point. Know? I think even the holodeck yeah. in general, in some ways, kind of puts that like ultimate gaming experience uh, out there in the universe and it's only now that technology like the VR uh, that uh, Jimmy mentioned earlier is like finally catching up with that for sure I think so um, so we mentioned of course that it was an award winning show I was not joking it it did win awards the George Foster Peabody Award 
for excellence in television broadcasting was given to this episode in 19, uh, uh, for 1987, even though this came out in 1988. I'm not sure why that's wrong. It won a Peabody. It won a Peabody. And according to this, it was the first episode, uh, I mean, sorry, it was the first hour long drama to ever win uh, a Peabody Award. So I think it also won an Emmy for costuming. Fascinating. Yes. Uh, and nominated for uh, cinematography, outstanding cinematography in this series. So, yeah, it uh, set a lot of um, uh, accolades there. Even Will Wheaton himself liked this episode. Aww. Yeah. He, no he said, even if he himself wasn't likable. Yes. Uh, he even <laughs> says that. He said, as actors, this was the first time uh, that we were really enjoying ourselves. And you could see that on the screen. Uh, he said, except for me, of course. But I was supposed to be nervous and self-conscious in this one. <laughs> Which he was. He was very nervous for his mom getting out of that thing. And that's why, looking through those binoculars, finally did it. Yeah, talk about a lot of pressure, by the way, to put on someone when you say, well, there's this one thing we could try. But if we do it wrong... They'll get deleted. Right. They'll get deleted. And they and they don't even think about it. He just immediately says, do it. Do it. Do it. And I'm like, that's your mom. Don't fuck that up. That's your mom. Yeah. Well, and he kind of fucked it up because at first they go to like Antarctica or something. The that's right. They do right have away. that one moment. <laughs> they go to Antarctica. Where the guy's like, finally, we can use the snow and frozen stuff we've been using. <laughs> Again. <laughs> yes. Oh, and you know what the one thing from the book said? was uh, uh, there was a lot of complaints about the holodeck thing, but they actually filmed all of the scenes that took place within the holodeck on the show in one set that was built for the holodeck. So they were able to fit everything within the little world confines of of the holodeck. Oh, that's kind of cool. That's super I like that. That's like when... Gosh, maybe I'm, you know, uh, you guys don't remember this one when ER did their live episode, yeah. how much they plotted out where the cameras and everything needed to go. I found that so fascinating that they did that in a totally uh, on the set and made it feel as as if it, we were really in a hospital. It's good stuff. Every six or seven years, they go through a whole thing about making sure that it's performed live. Like right now you have the, the musicals, which was kind of fun. Yeah. Like it's neat that they did those. But, you know, you had the ER episodes and that was around the same time they did Rock. the live version of uh, the remake of Fail Safe. Do you remember that with Clooney and mm-hmm. Anthony Edwards? And uh, it was a remake of a really fantastic uh, John Frankenheimer movie from the 60s. And then you had a few years before that, a few years after this episode, Rock yeah. Yeah. the whole season. Live. that really inspired me when I was a kid because I was in high school learning how to act and then they had an entire season that was live and you're like how are they even doing that with the with the cameras exactly like you're saying plotting it out it's amazing it is it, it melds you know t- uh, TV and theater into something that feels a lot closer whereas you know most people put TVs and movies and and they're closer but oh no there is a, a performance aspect to that uh, which this episode delves into with all the different uh ways that the characters are performing dun 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 (laughs) uh any other final thoughts on the big goodbye uh the only thing i will say is this was a very formative episode for me when i was a kid i ended up being uh, very fascinated with the whole noir uh thing and embodying a uh, a detective like this i remember yeah i think i was in fourth grade or third grade at the time and i remember writing a lot of like 
parody stories very similar to Dixon Hill. I definitely have three or four characters that are variations on the name of Dixon Hill as 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 PIs. <laughs> um, and when people would mention Star Trek Next Generation, this this is always one of the episodes that I will go to thinking about as. Uh, you know, really mind blowing for all the reasons we mentioned, but uh, the holodeck and and you know the meta nature of that is something that uh, still fascinates me to this day. Kate, what did you think of the big goodbye? Uh, in, in general, great episode. Uh, I love anytime they get to explore sort of the, that imagination. Uh, you know, where they get to explore their own creative sides. Um, there is one moment that I wanted to talk about as a, as a person who takes care of her NPCs when she plays video games. Yeah. Like I once played KOTOR, which is Knights of the Old Republic. It's an old Star Wars game. And I played it, got light side, was awesome. Decided to play it again as dark side. Killed this woman immediately. Felt so bad that I cried and then played the game again so much so that I got more light side than I knew was possible. <laughs> There's this moment <laughs> where his friend says to him as, 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 as John Luke is about to leave, well, when you leave, what'll happen to me? Will my wife and kids still be there? And you could lie to the fella. You could just give yeah. him a moment of peace and say, yeah, they'll be there. They'll be there. But he says, I honestly don't know. And just leaves that NPC to to just live their last moments on this uh, materialized Earth uh, in fear and sadness. So I'm just going to point that out. It's a really poignant moment because <laughs> as a as a video game player, you're like, well, you know, whatever happens doesn't really matter to these little bits of pixels and parts of the computer programming. But man, if I didn't feel that that moment too, because what do you say? You're like, I honestly, it's, it's like what happens after I die is also what he's asking, even though he's asking like right. what happens after the simulation. And then you're like, are we living, you know, there's that, that mathematical theory that you know it's impossible to prove that we are not currently living in a simulation right now uh, as, as humans. Right. And you're like, and this episode gets in that too. You're totally yeah. right. Yeah. Eric, what do you think? Like so much of the the series will, it reminds me of my father who, <clears throat> you know, was born during the film noir stuff and was such a huge fan of it his whole life. And at this point, unbeknownst to me at the time, was in the middle of writing a bunch of film noir novels that I knew he wrote pretty constantly. Uh, and, and it was passion, you know, a passion that he had. He, he, he wrote for some sports columns and things like that in the 70s but then he started writing mysteries and things like that through the 80s and 90s and never published any or got any published and i don't know that he submitted them but he might have but i do know that there are boxes and boxes of stuff like the dixon hill things that he that i'm making my way through right wow. now and it's just a delight to watch this and kind of think about the first time I was watching it with him so that was neat that's really cool boxes yeah, yeah you should submit it i want to get this well i've thought about adapting something and, and shooting it <laughs> you know so That'd we'll see cool. it's it's right now it's just really fun to read and kind of collect makes sense jimmy what did you think of the big goodbye uh it was a lot of fun it's a it's a great episode with some it's good to see him yuck it up a bit uh and you know it's it, it was it, it was a little disappointing that he didn't take uh what 
what Kate had said a little further at the very end. It's like they at the end wrote a line like, oh, right. That's what it's about. <laughs> but that's a take. <laughs> Wrap it up, guys. <laughs> Cut it, print it. Uh, you know, because that's really the, you know, that's the biggest thing from the, the, the whole episode is the metaphysical. Uh, what, what you guys are doing here isn't just fun and games. You're creating something that might have consequences. And it's just, you know. They're on the way at the end, but all the way up, the, the stuff before that, you know, besides bullets becoming real somehow from an <laughs> alien probe, it's, uh, it was a lot of fun to see these guys have fun to see Gates be able to uh, bring out her comedy chops and, you know, to see that sexual tension between Picard and Crusher, you know, like you can see the machinations of them feeling it out. Are we going to get these guys together or are we not? Let's see how the people respond. Which way are we going to go? And you know, right now we're kind of eventually there's going to be a little crusher kid running around a crusher Picard. Uh, and we'll see if that happens. If you think their tension is great, just wait till you see his sexual tension with Pulaski. <laughs> it's going to be. <laughs> I think there's a reason why she was only there for one episode. <laughs> <laughs> one season. I think a kid named Picard Crusher would be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I, uh, I, so just going back to Waylon, uh, what do you, what do you think he is, Jimmy? He, he never mentioned, he's never given a rank. Oh, right. He's never, uh, given So what's your headcanon about, about Waylon? Here's my theory. He's the husband of the chief engineer that we met in the first episode, the lady huh? engineer that we, we don't see again. Uh, he's her husband. He is a literary scholar. He's just there. You know, it's like five year mission. Sure. I've been wanting to write my book. I can really get it going because I won't have much going on. Uh, and after this incident, they immediately transferred off the Enterprise. And that's why we don't see her. But it, you know, the, the, the upside of it is it gave uh, Jordy uh, an open rung on the ladder to climb up a little bit further. So mm -hmm. it all works out. I'm liking it. I think that's canon. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, I like Jimmy's. We're sticking with it. I love it. Thank you all of you so much. It is, uh, again, always a highlight to talk through uh, the intricacies of a uh, well-told story uh, here. Uh, so thank you for that. And we'll be back with uh, our next episode of Re-Engage, talking about a fantastic episode, Data Lore. Yes! Hell Get to yes. meet the brother. Evil twin! Evil twin! Evil twin! Evil twin! Very exciting. Pants on. Those wet pants. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being with us on the bridge for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Instagram and Twitter at ReEngageTNG to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun Star Trek shenanigans. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Insta. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down on Twitter and Insta. Jimmy G is, of course, at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Reengage is edited and mixed by Krista Curry, at Krista from Glee on Twitter and Krista.Curry on Instagram. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo underscore 97 on Twitter, or you can find her at Mojo97.com. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Stand by for the saucer section to re-engage.